Why hello. I'm Kaylee Wilmer. Today might be Wednesday, and it's time to deploy the week two patch. This is the weekly patch. Joining me this week, we have the incomparable Jordan Jones Brewster. What it do, baby? I'm incomparable, but apparently we can compare our list on Twitter, and mine is not number one. I see how it is, fans. I see. You were tied for last. Not number one. Tied for last. Because Zyger rigged it and is a liar. Yeah, truth hurts. And to my not left or right, because we're not recording together, the indomitable Spencer Clark. I spent all week romancing the god of Aquarius. That was my whole week. Aquarius? Are we talking about Starcrossed Myth? We are. I love you so much. Nice, He's nice. a cutie. Oh, what is a good one? Capricorn. That's the real good one, isn't it? Anyways, Zyger. Oh, wow, so they all get nice little intros and I just get Zyger. I know where you live. No, you don't. Let's jump right in to the scrum. In this week's news, New Game Plus Expo coming March 2021 will feature all of the niche Japanese darlings from visual novel Wonder Kid, Idea Factory International to the original farming dating sim localizers Natsume. Not to mention Disguise 6 and Guilty Gear Strive being possible spotlights as Ms. America and Arc System Works are slated to appear as well. Koei Tecmo, home of Neo, Ninja Gaiden, Fatal Frame, and every Musou that isn't Persona 5 Strikers will also be there. New Game Plus Expo will be March 4th at 8 a.m. Pacific, the only valid time zone. For fullest attendees, check our patch notes. In other news, in shady, shady other news, Reggie Philomi, he is not impressed with E3 2020 plans. Quoted during an interview with Gamertag Radio, Reggie said, I have to say that what I read doesn't sound all that compelling. I think that the platform holders need to find a way digitally to enable their fans, their players, to experience the content. Because that's the key for E3, right? The ability to be playing The Last of Us Part 3 for the first time, or to play that next Breath of the Wild game for the first time, or to play the next great game coming from the new amalgamation of all the Xbox studios. That's an interesting addendum to last week's update for E3 2021 plans. Let's see if they can impress Reggie. Coming up this episode, what does that even mean? Jordan, what do you think? First of all, I'd love to impress Reggie. Reggie, you the man. I appreciate you. There's not a lot of black leaders in games. You were one for my entire life. But I think it's also important for you to recognize that when devs have to make a playable thing or a playable demo or anything for any type of event that is taking generally away from developing for the game and means that some amount of crunch or some amount of like hard work goes into a thing that takes away from the product. And in a pandemic, that just doesn't really sound like the best use of your resources. But hey, I might be wrong. You might be wrong. You might be right. But you're not Reggie filling me. And that's okay. I was only, like, I was this close to doing a Reggie, like, uh, not even a Reggie impression. I almost did like, a really bad French accent for the whole quote, decided against it, and you're welcome. You're also welcome for the decision that was made in No More Heroes 3 regarding the voice actor for Henry Cooldown. Used to be Quentin Flynn, but he's trash. For those who don't know, he sexually harassed and assaulted fans, including minor cosplayers who he forced kisses upon, among other disgusting disgusting things not much else to say just a shout out to companies showing how easy it is to just recast shitty talent and reset era for reporting on it zyger how cool is that i think it's really cool and american developers need to take note of everything the japanese developers are doing in this regard because japan has been a lot better at getting rid of problematic voice actors in their games you know what uh, japan's also much better at 
What, Kaylee? Thanks, Zyger. Thanks oh, for sorry. asking that question. I thought someone else was jumping in. <laughs> you know what else Japan is better at? Zyger, really? I d- I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna cut all this out. Third take. Third okay. take's the best take. Don't cut it out at all. <laughs> no, cut it out. You know what else Japan's better at? I have no idea, Kaylee. What else is Japan better at? Executive shade. That's right. Nintendo's back in the scrum. Because they're being shady ladies. In an interview with Nikkei, the president of Nintendo, Shintaro Furukawa, was discussing the acquisition of Luigi's Mansion 3 Dev Next Level Games. While talking about how they got a new studio, he couldn't help but say, quote, that they're not interested in just blindly acquiring companies. Quote, it's piping hot. And I can't help but wonder if it has a... a little bit of a pot shot at Microsoft scooping up studios like Supermarket Sweeps recently. I don't know, but I love it when they get shady. All right. We're going to go through this real quick. BlizzCon happened. That's a thing. Well, a big time for Diablo. The series getting Diablo 2 remastered coming, as well as another class reveal for Diablo 4. The notable absence of Overwatch 2 highlighted just how much of a PR ploy the announcement of its existence was in the wake of free Hong Kong protests last year. Fuck Blizzard. They also announced a WoW expansion with scant details and a collection of three niche-ass games. Truly, these are dark times. Jordan, what do you think? Fuck Blizzard. That's all I wanted to say. Fuck Blizzard. Other than that, free Hong Kong. In slightly better news, I guess, no ethical consumption under capitalism, the Nintendo Direct was dope as fuck. We'll get into it more in free play, but for JRPG lovers, read me, there was food. Off the bat, Xenoblade Chronicles 2 got added to Smash Brothers Ultimate, with Pyrrha and Mira coming as Zelda's Sheik-style hybrid character. Hyrule Warriors sees even more DLC. Fall Guys is coming to Switch. Hades is getting a physical Switch release. Skyward Sword HD is coming. New Mario Golf is coming. Monster Hunter Rise is coming. Ninja Gaiden Master Collection is coming. Outer Wilds is coming. No More Heroes 3 is coming. Stubbs the Zombie is coming. Splatoon 3 is coming. We've got Mario-themed items free in Animal Crossing. We have Famicom Murder Club. What if Danganronpa went Nancy Drew? We have World's End Club. What if the Nonary Games went Hardy Boys? Finally, we have the gorgeous and atrociously named Project Triangle Strategy, giving us everything we knew we wanted in an SRPG and a couple things we didn't. I am full. Full of discourse. That's right. That was a beautiful transition into our next and new segment. This is going to be a recurring feature on this podcast. We are lovingly referring to it as the quality assurance. Whenever someone, something, somehow is trending in the world of gaming, whenever a weird hashtag needs to be explained, whenever Jason Schreier isn't reporting on something, we're here. Time to enact a little quality insurance in the gaming industry. Today's hot takes and fat breakdowns will feature on a question not a lot of us are asking. Or maybe we are. Let's find out. Who is making the games we play? Now, we had a lot of seemingly disparate news sources, news articles, news pieces, pieces of news come out this week. When you get all your news on Twitter, it's hard to put that into a noun. Get off my back. But when taking a closer look, it seems like they all actually revolve around a question we're just not asking. So to give a quick rundown, this week, the creative lead of the new Harry Potter game, 
was revealed to be a misogynist hate tuber who freely admits that he let WB know that he ran a YouTube channel dedicated to espousing how wonderful Gamergate is, how nobody's nice enough to Ben Shapiro, and how it's okay to be a gamer, when we all know it is not. The crown prince of Saudi Arabia bought even more stock in even larger companies, which is going to be really, really fun for the next free Hong Kong when it's free. Every single country, oh God, we're all fucked. And lastly, the Six Days in Fallujah superstar, genius PR lead CEO and founder, Peter, I don't respect him enough to learn how to say his last name, Tampty is not only going to make an apolitical game about genocide, because he's never learned the phrase cognitive dissonance, he's also an RNC donor, puts his money where his apolitics are. What these all have in common is what it means for the people who make games. Making games. Who makes a game? And what does that say about the game? What do you guys think? Jordan, hit me with it hard real and true hard real and true Uh, i don't know i tried to go like mulan and then i panicked i don't i have a lot of balls to juggle in there if it's hard real and true i think that's not mulan that's gross (laughs) (laughs) i've been thinking a lot about this because when you look at who gets to make games and the talk about representation in games There's a lot of nuance to that conversation that isn't always thought through when you talk about it. So all these people are terrible that we just mentioned, right? For various different reasons. 100%. They now exist in a position of power where they are working on things that some directly have a real fucked up point of view. There may be diverse teams working on these things. They may be leading a group of diverse people, but the... And I'm not sure because I don't know much about these devs, particularly the Harry Potter game. But when you're a piece of shit and you're the one making the decisions, that's the feelings that get put in the game. So when you're trying to be apolitical, which is impossible when you're making art, and every artist knows that, and the only time that they say that they're being apolitical is when they don't want people to acknowledge that they're being bullshitters. When you're the lead of a game like that, and you're just putting all your shit in there, we're getting that. And it doesn't always happen so blatantly here. I really like playing Insomniac's Spider-Man game, but while I'm web-simming, I'm weaving around this weird, strong narrative that's super pro-police surveillance. Yeah, yeah, that's weird. You know, so it, it, it happens in the most extreme case. And we need to not only bring forth knowledge about these people, because like, fuck, honestly, fuck Harry Potter in general. We shouldn't be wanting to play a Harry Potter game. Yeah, that's going to be its own discourse topic as the game gets closer to development. For people listening at home, waiting for us to be like, oh, my God, the transphobe. But just for the record, oh, my God, the transphobe. The Harry Potter game has so much more to talk about. Transphobe and racist. Yeah. <laughs> we, we don't need none of that shit, but also... In a world where just last year, the games industry was kind of pretending to care about Black people and pretending to care about being more diverse and being more inclusive, we're still seeing the same shit get worse. And it takes us back even further because nobody wants to talk about Gamergate. You hear Gamergate, it doesn't even get people angry in the like riled up sense that it used to. But now people are like, oh my God, you're still talking about Gamergate. I just want to add that the creative lead for WB Games, major IP game, the person in charge of not only a major development studio in WB Games, this is a man not only in charge of a very high profile IP. This is a man who has a video in which he says, 
quote, some of you have expressed that due to my commentary on some game industry controversies and my sympathies for the Gamergate movement, then they might have a difficult time should I ever want to return to professional game development. I'm happy to say that, even though I disclosed my YouTube channel to WB Games, it didn't appear to be an issue for them. Not that they endorse anything that I've said, of course, but at least they seem more concerned with making good games than with pushing some kind of a social justice agenda. So there is hope end quote i'm gonna leave that quote there and throw it to you spencer it's super galling in the fact that wb was one of the people that we know reached out to feminist frequency when they were doing like diversity and sensitivity training for feminism for game studios that was one of the things they did directly in the wake of Gamergate. And to see it be reduced down to uh, one of my highlights of this horrifying quote, they seem more concerned with making good games than with pushing some kind of a social justice agenda. One, imagine being a female anything at that game studio now. Imagine knowing from the top down, they know it's not this was a secret Nazi. It's not this was a secret, like he said the N-word on his Twitch stream that gets three views so no one caught it. This is, I told them myself. I had such little shame that I told them myself. And not only did they not care, they actively gave me hope that people like me, people who do not think women belong here, do belong here and that's heartbreaking that's systemic that's what we mean when we say systemic that's not one bad apple that's oh we got to get that guy out of there that's if this guy was fired tomorrow any woman still working for wb games knows that the people doing the hiring will see this shit and not care I think it's important to note that, like, we keep calling it WB Games, but it's Avalanche Studios. It's the old inf- Disney Infinity studio that he is working at, and he worked on all the Disney Infinity games. And the game that gets me that he was a designer on that is the most galling is Hannah Montana World Tour, which was a pretty big game for teenage girls when it came out. From a guy who makes videos, again, espousing... Here's just a sampling of the titles of the videos that this man's done. The Legacy of Anita's Tropes versus Women, with a picture of Anita Sarkeesian's face photoshopped on a cartoon white knight. Responses to Cultural Complicity. The Injustice of Social Justice. Response to Phil DeFranco's take on net neutrality. This man is very anti-net neutrality, if you can believe that. This person working in games has multiple videos on how net neutrality is bad. That's how stupid this person is. He does uh, beautifully have a video titled The Joy of Wrong. Because that's the point, is that they revel in it. They know that there's no consequences. They know that there's this joy. One of his best videos, in praise of cultural appropriation. (laughs) Just the worst. I also want to just mention that Avalanche is a very large studio. Right? Not large, but they've been around the block, and, and Spencer just mentioned, this is a legacy studio. It's like one that has games that people have known 
that people have played. So it's not even like this is some new shit. Six Days in Fluja, it's the CEO founder of a teeny thing that hasn't made a, the game yet. So it's easy to write that off. It's like, oh, some like nutwing made a game studio in his backyard. Call me when he has an actual game or something. Yeah, it's not hate. It's easy to discount that, right? Yeah, exactly. We're not sitting here talking to something that like the crown prince of Saudi Arabia owns 12% of Blizzard is, you know, a little bit of a harder thing to discuss in terms of like systemic problems in gaming. That's a conversation when it comes down to we'd be careful of monopolies. We need to be careful of the ability of like, I don't know, I hate the stock market. I wish it didn't exist. You wouldn't have publicly traded companies if there was nothing to trade and you couldn't have murderers buying stock in Overwatch. It's a very systemic problem and it can feel helpless to really do anything about God damn, this is just straight up a large storied legacy studio letting the people from the top to the bottom know they do not care. They do not care. Do you care? Well, I do care. But in regards to this, I was thinking about Spencer's comment about how Warner Brothers has historically gone to feminist groups to help with creative writing and to try to support diversity in their workplace and whatnot. And I was thinking back, in regards to this Hogwarts Legacy game, last year when this whole when the game was announced and everyone was against J.K. Rowling because of who she is, obviously a bad person, Warner Brothers went out of the way to say that she was not directly involved with this game mode in any capacity, and they were trying to... Minus making money off of it. Minus making money off of it, but they were trying to go real hard to separate her from the game, that way people can continue to support the game. And then a week or so later, they also had a statement like, oh, well, J.K. Rowling's entitled to her opinions. We're not going to say that she's wrong or anything. She's entitled to have whatever opinion she wants because she's a great partner and she's making us a lot of money on this game that she's not directly involved with by our game. Warner Brothers will do and say one thing, but also do and say the other. They're like, oh, there's no transphobe running this game, but we're not against transphobia. She's allowed to have that opinion. We do not care. We're not taking a stance. It comes back to them trying to take the money of both sides of really obvious issues that don't have two sides because they're moral issues. It's like, oh, you know, like we have this concept that like 50% of the human populace is naturally just like a conservative bigoted Republican. And so you have to like, you're losing out on 50% of sales if you don't cater to the worst people. Catering to one means not catering to the other. So even if your math is right and it's 50-50, you're choosing to cater yourselves to the shitty 50% instead of the anti-shitty 50%. And then you get into the fact that it's really closer to like 70-30, which is still a little horrifying to think about and now you're specifically choosing to be more immoral and fucked up to cater to a smaller percentage of society because we have convinced ourselves that that's the segment of society that likes games and that happens because it's a fucking feedback loop of of who games are made for yeah the weird thing about that is that it's not like shitty people don't play or don't experience art with great messages. Anyway, a lot of bigots like X-Men, which seems like it just doesn't make sense. All like, of the bigots that don't realize what Rage Against the Machine is raging about. Most bigots are too stupid to care about the message anyways, or to read news reports anyways. Like, fuck it. Non-action is an action. Yes, people want to convince themselves that inaction is not in and of itself an action. 
and fuck them. It is. Ninja. Well, I didn't tell them to do it, and not actually telling them to not do it is somehow the same as doing nothing to me. Because if I didn't do this, it implies I've done the other. And it's like, no. When you're playing Disgaea and you choose wait, that's still a turn. A turn has advanced. You've just not moved. I think it's also pretty important to think, especially when you're thinking about this guy's a lead position, which means he's definitely hiring people who are like him. The culture of a development team, the culture of a PR team, anything like that is going to come from that person. Especially creative. He's in charge of what creative direction a game takes. And we've seen how he expresses himself creatively. And it's putting Anita Sarkeesian's head on a caricature white knight. I mean, yeah, that, but there's a lot of talk, especially in tech, about how we need to get people of color and Black people and women coding when they're young and in college. So they can work for this guy. So that they can get into the pipeline and have to go into a workplace that isn't made to support them in a way where they're just going to be shit on in various different ways until they're just like, well, I can take my tech knowledge out of games and put it in somewhere else that's slightly less shitty. Is it like a pipeline to failure? Yeah. We have to look at what we're doing in studios and the culture of studios as a whole before we start throwing marginalized people into the situation and being like, well, that just fixed it. We fixed it. Yeah, you got to support them. The support (laughs) systems that don't exist just means that you're throwing us into a blender to be chopped up. When you get hired, our HR rep writes her personal cell phone number on a post-it note, puts it on your intake paperwork, and is like, you know, if you ever have any problems, feel free to come here so that we can file it and do nothing, and then at your yearly evaluation, mark you down as problematic and not jiving with the company's ad environment so that we can let you go. (laughs) Not a good fit for our country. I also don't want to forget talking about the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. Mm Mm-hmm. I hope I said that name wrong. I don't want to say that name wrong. Because it's not only a person that almost certainly had people killed owning game studios. That's already a terrible thing, right? It's already like clearly dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly dumb. That's dumb. That's stupid. This is also a, a government owning studios. It worked out super well for Rhode Island. And this is a crown prince. Like they, they have a prince scenario. Like he is going to be a king. He is. Yeah, he's going to be a king. He will be the king. And everything is going to be lineage and family. Like, that shit's going to keep going and getting worse and worse. And, like, they own a third of SNK. So now, me, fighting game player, never going to play an SNK game again. So the investments that he has put towards uh, video game studios include 14.9 million shares in Activision, 7.4 million shares of EA, 3.9 million shares of Take-Two, and a third of the shares for Japanese fighting game maker SNK. So the amount of money that he has put between just the three companies before you get into SNK is $3 billion. And the amount to SNK is a little bit unclear, but he has expressed plans to buy even more shares and have a majority ownership of that company. He's making a point to get into games. And this isn't the first four into games. Two years ago, he started to put his money into esports and he started investing into the fighting game community. Yes. And other communities, but he would have tournaments with large payouts or advertises large payouts for like it's Tekken. Horrible, because and fighting games, it's so hard to make money as a professional fighting game player. So to have these really large pools 
for tournaments it's so hard to morally be like no i'm just gonna turn away that money you know i I make a pittance compared to any other professional sports player considering that you can be a pro from the ages of 18 to retiring at the ripe age of 21 and a half maybe like you know we are going to see a situation because i've seen esports commentators and shit be pro child working because they're like 14 year olds should be able to be pro esports players because that's how small the career is if you have to start at 18 for a pro esports player or a pro fighting game player and so to take those people and to dangle large sums of money in front of their head as this horrible like moral conundrum it's just fucked up and none of those players that went to that tournament competed got paid they are still waiting for their payouts yeah, that's a thing that no one got paid. That is a common thing with ex- exploitation of finding a community in esports in general. He has already proven to be exploitative of the community of games and everything that we stand for. So to trust him and to feel cool about him coming in and buying studios, I, I can't jive with it. I would just circle back to the fact that it's a government. The other thing that's horrifying about it is it's coming from the fund that they have specifically set up to diversify the money in Saudi Arabia away from oil money. We're not going to stop burning fossil fuels tomorrow. So oil is going to continue even when they were in the middle of a trade war with Russia at the beginning of the pandemic, right? He's still in that calendar year going out and spending $3 billion like it's no problem. So oil is just going to fund that fund ever until there is no oil in Saudi Arabia and they will have diversified out to just own the world. I think that is their long-term strategy. Long-term strategy. Money laundering on a global scale, but that thing where it's money laundering so that you can eventually launder it into a, a chain of really nice, you know, those coin laundries that have the arcades in them, like two two arcade cabinets from 30 years ago. It's like when you launder all your money into those until you have so much profit coming in from coin laundry that you don't even need to be a gangster anymore. But with video games. So in regards to this crown prince buying all these games, I've seen a lot I would say a lot of people on Twitter talking about it and not quite understanding what makes this different than, for example, Microsoft buying studios or THQ buying studios. This is a government buying studios and they will have majority share in a lot of these games and control the messaging in these games. Yeah, this is a highly conservative monarch it's more comparable to what a Vivendi was trying to do to Ubisoft. Vivendi was there to slowly tiny year after year, just buying up the shares, buying up the shares, buying up the shares to hostily take over. See, again, if we didn't have stock markets and you didn't have publicly traded companies, you couldn't have hostile fucking takeovers. The stock market is a scam and we don't need it. Destroy it. I don't think Saudi Arabia is ever going to get to the point where they want to own like majority stock holding in it, but they want big enough of a percentage that they get a say in it. And for Blizzard, that's 5% because that's how much Tencent owns of Blizzard for them to freak out as bad as they did about Free Hong Kong was 5% of their company was all it took. Such a small barrier of entry. Yeah, the damage that Free Hong Kong did to Blizzard's reputation was worth it to them for a 5% share. So now take the man that had Jamal Khashoggi chopped up into pieces and multiply that times two, because it's 10. I agree with a lot of that. And what a lot of people aren't getting is that this will eventually lead to censorship of games, because I'm sure that you guys are aware of what happened with that game Devotion last year, or 
kind of the beginning of this year. Tell me about it. It was a indie game, and there was a small Easter egg calling the president of China Winnie the Pooh, and it was just a small little joke. But because of that Easter egg, they got banned in China, and CD Projekt owns a little shop called Gog, Good Old Games, which is a huge distributor of smaller indie games on PC platforms. And they had to delist the game. Now this entire game will not be allowed on this entire service, mostly because of what's going on with China. But now this game can't be served on any American server, European server. You can't buy this game on GOG anymore because of CD Projekt's refusal to stand up against the Chinese government and like willing to censor themselves and cut off this small portion of funding for this one game so they can make good of China. If issues going on with the crowd brands buying all of these big publishers, you will continue to see more games not mention anything wrong with China or even doing the opposite. People aren't seeing that this is an issue that will lead to changing how game stories are told if it's not addressed at all. When you remove the artist from the art, when you remove the people that fund the art, this is what happens. You you take away the politics of a thing that's inherently political and things start to get out of hand. And when what we don't realize as an industry is that it is not the job of the consumer to just know this shit. We have to tell them. We, we need to take this out from the inside. Otherwise, the average person playing Call of Duty knows nothing about what happens with the devs of Call of Duty. The average person that plays the Ubisoft games has no fucking clue that there was a bunch of sexual assault that was just put under the rug last uh, last year and before that. In the same way that ignorance of a crime isn't defense of a crime unless you're Donald Trump or his children, it's important for somebody to be saying, hey, so we know WB's fucked. Hey, just so we know, we need to figure out what we're going to do about the fact that a highly conservative, violent government that's already shown a deep propensity for censorship and corruption is buying large decision-making stakes in all of the largest money-making brands in our industry. Because whether we want to acknowledge it or not, you will see the repercussions of this in the coming years. That is the result. People don't spend $3 billion buying the right to have a voice in something, not to exercise that power, especially when you're dealing with a government that has shown such a clear joy in exercising any and all power it can. And I'm not one to just spout out, we need to be doing X, Y, and not say anything actionable. There are direct people that need to be doing this. Not only does it have to be the news outlets that cover games, if you're going to cover a game, which they're going to do, at the very least, at the very beginning, put up some warning. By the way, this game is owned by a tyrannical government. By the way, this game is created in part by a misogynist alt-right hate tuber. Not only the news outlets, but the influencers and the ball is going to directly change the way we have to talk about games. If you stream Six Days in Fallujah without ever mentioning what happened in Fallujah in a real way, you have no business streaming that game. If you do YouTube videos discussing Six Days in Fallujah and you do not reference the fact that this game was created by a man who said that he intended to take the politics out of the situation and actively donates money to the Republican National Convention, you have no business covering this game. Those are the actionable things you need to do because it's not about trying to convince someone not to play the game. 
Notice none of us have said that. It is important to educate. The people that decide they want to buy the next Harry Potter game because they like Harry Potter more than they hate giving transphobes and misogynists and racist money, that's on them. But if you have a platform, you have a responsibility to let people who look to your platform know the reality of what their decisions are doing. I think when you're talking about big games like Harry Potter, I think that that's an inevitable thing that'll be doing a bit like Six Days in Fallujah. I think that if a big outlet or a medium sized outlet was just like, this is a game about genocide and we're not going to cover it. Oh, yeah. We're just not going to give that space on our thing. That would go a big thing. And I think if one of them does it, more of them would do it. Going back to what Jordan was saying about inaction being in action, that is a beautiful way of doing that. And instead of doing that in a way that's like, I'm lazy and complacent, doing it in a way where your inaction is taking a stand. We're not going to cover this game. We're going to do nothing. We are going to go, no, we don't need to cover that. Because there are a lot of games that don't get covered. they make editorial choices every day, right? Like they make editorial choices about what games they're going to cover every single day. I don't think the budget of a game should be the end-all be-all of will this game get covered. To touch on this very briefly, just in the way that it relates to what you're saying, that's what happened with Cyberpunk, in my opinion. So many people were like, well, this game was really expensive, and everyone knows the studio that made it, so we have to cover it. Even when it was too broken to play. Even when there was nothing to say. Even when most people didn't like it that much. There was this thing where every think piece was... Well, I mean, I have to do this, so... And we need to go all the way back. We need to go all the way back to the why. This industry, like all industries, like all human beings in my experience, has failed to ask the question why for too long. And what we need to start doing is getting that instinct to ask why. Why is it a WB Games okay with letting a Gamergator be its creative lead? Why are all of these outlets using their resources to cover Six Days in Fallujah, a tiny game from a nothing studio that's nowhere near coming out yet? Like, Why are we doing these things? Why are we making fundamental choices in the way that we behave? Why do we allow certain things? Why don't we allow other things? We have to start questioning why and not just keep saying well that's how it's been that's how it is that's just how it works that's the industry you know especially as a woman you hear a lot men are gonna sexually harass that's just how it is so you have to learn how to address it how to adapt to it it goes from playing along and acting like it's fine to well now we're gonna change it to when you address it it's you go to hr and we'll take it serious and it's never going back to the Why do we just assume men have to sexually harass? Why can't we go a step further and put all of the onus and attention? And I know this part doesn't groundbreak, but why don't we put the onus on? Why is toxic masculinity acceptable? Why is this the public perception of boys will be boys? How long ago was that Gillette commercial? But why is it a thing that boys will be boys, but girls have to be little adult maids. We need to start asking these types of questions because if not, we're going to get to a point where you wake up one day and my Shirinui no longer exists because the crown prince of Saudi Arabia has deemed her outfit to be sinful and she's been censored. Which already happened with Nintendo. I I just want to talk quickly about how the games industry decides what to cover because it's a thing that you brought up. 
not only what to cover, but how they talk about games. And Cyberpunk is a strong example because that's another thing that has done this, but it, it's with Harry Potter as well, where the games industry just decides based off of marketing cycles what a game of the year contender will be. Yep. And therefore, without any merit to the actual art that's being put out, we decide this has to be a thing that we talk about all the time. This has to be a thing we have to put all our resources for. We have to make sure we have all the wikis done for this. We need to put all the eyes on this because it's going to be a game of the year. Why? Because the big people are making it. The Harry Potter game is going to be that, but it's also because it's a giant IP. Some of the games from the studios that the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia is going to be because he has stakes in tons of huge studios. And it's just because we're told that they need to be the big games. And we just forced to just consume that shit yeah. or not. Or just don't. But I, I don't like putting it on the consumer to just stop doing it. They need to just stop making that content. It's frustrating because a lot of times games journalists, in my experience, their holier-than-thou response is, well, if we don't do it, then we're missing out on the crumbs of money that we get because we're all underpaid and every other outlet is going to do it and they'll get the clicks and we won't get the clicks. And if we don't get the clicks, we can't pay rent because none of us get paid anything. And it's like, okay, yes, you don't get paid anything and you live off crumbs, but... Again, I think, Spencer, you said it right. If one company that's probably not Polygon or Kotaku because they've already seen as SJW companies, so they'll probably be seen as two SJW if they do it first. But IGN really has a really important place to start doing shit like that. The companies that aren't already seen as being a little bit more willing to go there need to go there fucking hard. Straight up, we're not covering this hard because... It's just like unionizing. It's just like anything. It's any type of collective action. Yes, if no one else does it, then oh well, I guess we're all fucked. So let's just all be fucked. But if everyone doesn't want to do it and everyone is only doing it because everyone else isn't doing it, y'all have your whisper networks. Y'all have your back channels. Y'all have your secret fucking group chats. Don't act like you don't. Everyone just decide. We're not covering this game. We all decided we're not doing it. The end. I think that the excuse that they give that like, if we don't get these clicks, oh man, these clicks are the only thing that's going to matter. The SEO and what is trending changes so fast now. I would believe that argument like two years ago, three years ago, but Twitter being so important in how games journalism and games websites get people into their thing that like, by the time everyone had read the one bad cyberpunk article or review came out right and that was the end of that day so there was a whole afternoon of them getting clicks on their website that isn't about this one thing right i just don't buy that you can't take a two-day hit on not covering a game about genocide and polygon is the one who did that interview it should be known the interview where he says it's apolitical is a polygon in I will say that the Saudi Crown Prince interview is a Rebecca Valentine piece from IGN. Rebecca Valentine, I think, is a good example of what I'm talking about. Just in the sense that Rebecca Valentine has more of a history of being... I know it sounds trite to be like, speak truth to power! But not being afraid to be like, this is fucked up! I don't know. Has woke points. How do you say? In a good way. Compliment... Everything that you can say nice about somebody in terms of not being a piece of shit is earnestly used as a pejorative by the right so it's hard to compliment someone for not being a piece of shit without accidentally using you know woke used to be a good thing until you know black women's language got taken and ruined by the rest of us again it's just annoying but rebecca is the type of voice that ign should be putting forth and allowed to be paid to do pieces about how 
the Saudi crown prince is buying companies. Like, this is the type of article I want to see more of on IGN. Rebecca is a journalist, is I think what you're trying to get at. Like, Rebecca has always been out there at gamesbindustry.biz, like pounding the pavement, doing the financials, doing all of the hard digging, not, I'm going to rewrite the PR piece. I'm going to put it in my own words and then that's an article, right? Yes. I feel like there's a lot of that in games journalism and it's nice to see Rebecca get elevated from a smaller outlet like gamesindustry.biz to an IGN because it makes me think maybe someone at news at IGN is like, we need to take news seriously. And quite frankly, maybe it shows that you can do this type of work and get the hits that y'all are so addicted to. Like, I find it so hard to believe me and all of my other not piece of shit, transphobic, bigot, misogynist friends spend all of our time on Twitter and clicking links and listening to podcasts. So the idea that nobody's reading these articles because they don't want to and not because they aren't getting written is just so silly to me because anytime this type of shit gets actually written about in a real way like you were saying like as a journalist not just oh here's a pr release oh i mean i'm sorry i mean an article it's news because it's revolutionary because the games industry plays this funny game where again it acts like these questions with easy answers are just impossible they're like well the the devs have to give us games for free early or we can't afford to play them or get our review out first and then the people that do play nice will get the games early and get their reviews out first and so we all have to suck up to the publishers or we can't get the games early and so we have to straddle this weird line between journalists and PR extensions and it's like no if everybody just decides hey fuck you we're gonna get the game the day it comes out and we're gonna release our review maybe a week later and the games all get to take a week one hit or they get to give us the games early it only benefits the games company if everybody just if the standard becomes a games review is not out until a week after the game is out that's how it would be, and that's what gamers would expect, and all gamers would buy the game, like, week two. You wouldn't get the day one numbers because of the people that, like, the people that that care about reviews, that are reading the reviews day one, who allegedly, because allegedly the reviews are for people who are trying to decide to buy the game or not. So the review has to come out the day the game comes out so that people know to buy the game or not. That's the logic that we're accepting, because that's the logic they're selling us. So if that is true... Then the only thing that changes if the reviews all come out a week or later is that the games get bought a week later by the people that care about reviews, right? Like, that's how it works. Fuck it. Either give us the games early and don't censor us in the way we write about your games, or don't, and then you can take the hit on week one sales. But we know publishers don't think about reviews that way because Bethesda straight up just stopped giving people games early. Yeah. Like, it stopped. What was it? Was Fuck it. It. Was, it wasn't Fallout 4. It was whatever was after Fallout 4. It, they did it with Doom. It was Doom. The first Doom, yeah. Doom, yeah, because it was actually good. It was very smart of them because they did it with a game that was actually good first so that when they did it with Fallout 76, people could be like, well, I mean, they did it with Doom and Doom was good. So that was smart of them. That was clever. That was tricksy. I think they also did it with Dishonored 2. They did it with all games. Yeah, after the first one. When they came out with Doom, yeah, I, I they were Dishonored like- 2 was the first one, is what I'm saying. Oh, Dishonored 2 was the first one. Doom was what, 2016? When was Dishonored 2? I 
thought it was 2015. Oh, well, I was, I was like, it? was it 2015? I don't know. I know it was after Fallout 4 because in Kotaku's review of Fallout 4, they made a big deal about how Bethesda had basically blacklisted them from getting games copies early because Jason Schreier was leaking their games. I mean... I have mixed feelings about that as someone who's done PR. I feel like, yeah, no, you should either give everybody something early or not. But I understand the mentality of a PR team being like, no, fuck the guy who made us be here till three in the morning because he decided that leaking whatever he got from an employee was more important than the labor that goes into making a launch product. I get that there's probably some personal politics that are going to that decision making. Or I think people think it's like a business thing. I think it's probably more of a like, oh, it's all networking and who you know. That's the whole thing. I know that guy like how many times now have we been at this office cleaning up launch details because they have to be completely different now because the game got leaked. So I understand I found out a destructed article with the information. This article is from October 2016, and it says that Doom came out earlier that year without a review copy, and that trend will continue for Skyrim Special Edition and Dishonored 2. So it looks like Doom was the first one, and then the next ones that came after that was the 900th Skyrim and Dishonored. Civ 7 and Mafia 3 looks like they also didn't do it, but Bethesda was first. So 2K actually followed them with Mafia and Civ by not doing advanced review copies so at this point 2015 the industry could have completely changed from a model where it's everybody has to not sleep and you know mainline g fuel to get a 70 hour rpg beat in two days so that they can give a full review the day before it launches that culture benefits no one but the game publishers that get to have a big day one number that is the only person that benefits in this entire structure of crunch and bullshit and moral and ethical issues all of them come down to the fear of what publishers will do if their day one numbers decrease allegedly mostly it's the fear of change and laziness and complacency da, 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 da. Boop. hey With that, we're going to switch over to our free play. Now, we're going to lighten this the fuck up because my name is Kaylee Woomer and I'm addicted to Persona 5 Strikers. I got a gift card for the Nintendo Switch and was like, cool, I'll pre-order Persona 5 Strikers because I will pre-order any game that either has a collector's edition I want. I'll pre-order it because it's collector's edition. Or if it's a game that I know I'm buying digitally and I want to play it as soon as midnight hits and I get to play it, I'll buy it like the night before. You know, this one I bought what I thought was pretty early because I was just like, oh, cool. I got this gift card for Valentine's Day. So like on Valentine's Day, I pre-ordered the $10 more money collector's edition, special edition, deluxe edition, whatever the fuck of Persona 5 Strikers. And it gave me a countdown. So my dumbass thought that the game came out on the 19th of February, 18th, whatever day it came out for me. Turns out it only came out early if you pre-ordered it, and I did. And it is, as of the time of recording, Sunday, peek behind the curtain. When you're listening to this, if you're a day one purchaser like those we were just discussing it's going to be wednesday the game will have been out for roughly 24 hours and i'm exactly 30 hours into the game i saved right before recording this podcast and it shows you your time and i am 30 hours zero zero minutes 
into Persona 5 Strikers. This is my first Musou. I've never played a Musou. I just love Persona, so it didn't fucking matter. And Zyger can speak a little bit more to how it is as a Musou. I don't pinch I know. But for me, the combat is really fun and hacky slashy. I'm having a great time. I have small complaints like... I expect waves and waves of enemies and big combo numbers, kind of like when I'm playing Diablo 3 and I'm just clearing hordes of demons on the map. This game, just like in regular Persona 5, there are monsters that you see in the overhead world and you walk up and you hit them and then they explode into Personas to fight. The same thing happens in Persona 5 Strikers, but they explode into like 50 guys. But then you kill the 50 guys and then you walk a couple more feet and you hit the next overhead monster, and he explodes into 50 guys. And I'm constantly wishing that all of these overhead guys, you know, the six security guards that each explode into 20 monsters, I wish that there was just 120 monsters on the field, and I can just hack and slash through them. Yeah, This game feels like... I'm constantly feeling, oh, they had to cram this on a Switch, which is kind of like cramming it on a PS3. You can feel the things that they've had to remove to fit it on there. And there's quite a few loading screens. They're never very long. They're very short. I can't take a hit. But they are there frequently. Other than that, it's very Persona 5. Like, it feels so much like Persona 5. It has tons of cutscenes. It has tons of new dialogue. You're going on, like, a cross-country road trip with your friends. Super charming. All the characters are great. Everyone's more likable. Everyone's more charming. You have so much more time with everybody. I do think they did Makoto dirty, though. Makoto's hall monitor personality got cranked up to 10 she is the fun police she is the monica from friends i never liked her so i'm like oh this is great they've made her so much less redeemable it's awesome they do some convoluted narrative plots for why they don't have to have tie the doctor back in the shop the shop's closed they have stuff like that again where you can feel them taking away and and removing stuff but so far I'm 30 hours in. I'm about to finish the third area, palace, dungeon, map, level, chapter, whatever. And the combat's really fun. It's really, really stylish and awesome. And all of the things you love about Persona, but also all of the things you hate about Persona. A lot of times in the story, they spoon feed you narrative. My biggest complaint with this game so far is that I'm just starting to have it let go of my hand. And I feel like that little kid that's like, no, I don't need you to hold my hand. I just want to run around like a drunk penguin. Even if I fall down, just let me run around and fall down and get back up. It's going to be fun. And I, and I feel that weight of it constantly wanting to handhold. And the narrative is very, very linear. But it's just starting to open up. And the more it opens up, the better it feels. Okay. So one of the first things you said was, this is your first Musou game. And while I completely agree this game has Musou elements to it, I could see the argument that you have not played a Musou game yet. Because I have played, and I did the math earlier, three different Musou games. I've only ever beaten one of them. But Persona 5 Strikers, again, while it has Musou elements, is not necessarily a Musou. It is more so, in my opinion, an action RPG that the combat 
is similar to Musou's. And it's not a bad thing. This isn't a dig against Persona, Strikers, or Musou gameplay mechanics. It's all done really well, and it is, in my opinion, like a real true sequel to Persona. And it's a Persona game first, a Musou game third, and something else second. I think it's interesting because this is made from P-Studio, who makes Persona 5, and Omega Force, a Koei Tecmo studio that makes all the Musou games. I'm wondering how they work together. I have not played this game yet. I will, and I plan to play it on my PlayStation 5, which gets here March 3rd. (gasps) Yay! I should have got it on PlayStation. The hardest part of this game is that I don't play with the Switch Pro controller ever, and I've been playing a ton of Yakuza on Xbox, and I cannot get X and Y right. Y is your basic attack button, and X is your special button, and I keep fucking using my special and spamming my special. It's so embarrassing. A best part of the reason why I'm getting on PlayStation is the others for the loading times. Yes. I saw like a side-by-side of PS5 and Switch, and I was like, oh, I can't, I'm not dealing with that. I'm certain PS5 will have no loading times because the loading times are so small on Switch. It honestly feels like if you've played the Kingdom Hearts collection and you've played Birth by Sleep in the Kingdom Hearts collection on PS4 and it's smooth, but there's all these loading screens that don't take very long. And then you remember that you're playing a port of a PSP game. So on the PSP, those loading screens were necessary and probably much longer. That's how it feels to play this game on Switch. I have a question. So a big problem that atlas slash p studio always have with the persona games and the catherine games and the games in the general persona universe are lgbtqia representation yes i has have you come across an example of that same type of behavior my instinct was to say there so far has not been any lgbtqia reference whatsoever in any capacity they don't have those stereotypical gay men that they usually have in p4 and p5 i think they're in p3 yeah they were in p3 too i believe jesus but what i will say is that what they do have are dialogue choices where oh that would be good fan service if you were shipping that yaoi couple like there's good like flirtatious lines between Ryuji and Hiro and Yusuke and Hiro that you can pick that don't sound the cringe one where where it's like it could be a joke but it could be playfully flirtatious and it's played straight it's not played like ew did you just say a gay thing at me it's played where it's like oh well Ryuji gets flustered when you use one of those lines are you serious oh wow mm. yeah and so it's almost like it it's giving a little bit of fan service to yaoi pairing fans in a way that is not anything that I even would write home about, which is why my instinct was to say that they don't really do anything with it. But I will say, if you're a person that 10 years ago, when this was all you had, look, you could write a fan fiction about this one moment. It has those if you want them. Which is a very low bar, but it's where they're at now. They haven't done anything egregiously horrific that I've noticed, but they certainly haven't done anything loud enough to be worth lauding. But I guess I would be remiss to say that there's nothing. There's there's that little flavor subtext that even used to be too far for them to do with a straight face because Kanji couldn't speak without Yosei having to scream no homo. So it's better than that. If that answered your question, I'm going to ask Spencer if she has any because I feel like this is her... You know, we're all just JRPG sluts, never mind. Like, this is one of her jam genres. But I will say, to answer your question, Jordan, lastly, I can tell you exactly how they divvied the work. P-Studio made this entire fucking game, and then when you hit the bad guy to launch the fight, that's when they were like, okay, now make the Musou part. 
every single time a fight is initiated, I expect it to transition to that turn-based battle screen. Everything around me, the way that I navigate the world around me, the way that everything works is so reminiscent to Persona 5 that it is only when combat is fully initiated that I'm like, oh yeah, this is a Musou. That is the moment. It's a switch. You can feel it. You just paste in Musou mechanics to the combat section of Persona 5, and that is what you have. And then they had to shove it on a PS3. That's all I want. I love, I love all of that. If you were looking at it, like, I'm a Musou fan, but I don't really give a shit about Persona. I would recommend it less than if you're... Like, I play Persona 4 Arena. I don't give about fighting games, but Persona 4 Arena is a legitimate sequel. You know, I played Persona 4 Dancing because it was a legitimate story sequel. If you're that person, if you play Persona Q, not because you love Etrian Odyssey, but because you'll play a Persona game in a weird format, you will enjoy this game. And that's me. Full disclosure. Okay. Okay, so... I am someone who has not finished either Persona 5 or Persona 5 Royal. I am about two-thirds of the way through Persona 5 and maybe halfway through Persona 5 Royal. Which one is the one that it's a sequel to? Great question. Persona 5 Scramble is a direct sequel to Persona 5, the original. There is no Kasumi from Persona 5 Royal. There is no... I keep calling him Takuto because my very first Voltage Otome game was the one with the black foxes. I can't think of the name right now. They were thieves. It was, it was so so long ago. It was like 2013. Damn it. Were they phantom thieves? Am I right? Hey. <laughs> Kind of. They weren't full Phantom Thief. That was a tragedy. No, they were like, they were cool. They had like a hacker and they had, anyway, Takuto was the Sundari one. This game does not have either of the new social links from Persona 5 Royal. It does not reference Persona 5 Royal at all. It references Persona 5 in the sense that they're all like, we're all friends. We all did Persona 5 together, and now we haven't seen each other in like eight months. Golly gee, I can't wait to catch up because we're all good friends. And then when the cookie stuff starts happening, there's this thing where it's just like, oh, this is kind of like what happened with palaces, but it's different. Wait, this isn't how it works in a palace. And so then they stop comparing it to palaces pretty early. So if you've never played the game, you'll be like, oh, okay. I don't know why I give a shit how palaces worked if it's not like this, but sure. I'm tempted to say you don't really need to play Persona 5 to play it, but this is a sequel. You can do whatever you want. I watched Crank 2 without ever watching Crank 1. I'm a wild card. But I think that this is mostly, again, a game for people who love. (laughs) I'm giving a real stink face. This is an audio podcast. Anyways, she doesn't deny it. <laughs> the list of movies I've only seen a sequel to is so long. I keep an updated tweet about it because it makes me happy. I've never seen Sister Act 1. I've only seen Sister Act 2. That's a lot of people. For the better. Sister Act 2 is a great movie. Blues Brothers 2000. I loved as a kid. I never watched Blues Brothers 1 because it was after John Belushi died and I felt too sad. I couldn't watch a comedy with a dead guy. Like I was a little kid. I was like nine when I fell in love with Blues Brothers 2000 because I was nine in 2000 this is breaking me this is the, the, the these these movie takes are breaking me I'm glad this my is grandmother game. had blues brothers one and two on vhs and so she let me borrow them because i was like i love these guys look they got suits and glasses and funny hats like i was just super into the covers and so i knew john belushi was dead and i was like well that's a bummer and so i watched blues brothers two and that's how i discovered blues traveler that's how i discovered erica badu that's how i discovered a ton of music and anytime I'd go to put the blues 
I can see it in my head, the Blues Brothers VHS to sleeve. I just see John Belushi and I'd be like, it's so sad he died young because he was addicted to drugs and obese. And then I can't put it in because I get sad. I've never seen any Chris Farley movie. I don't watch John Candy movies that um, have come out since he died. I get too sad seeing all of these really funny fat white dudes that died early. To be honest, I can't even watch Shorties watching Shorties anymore because Patrice O'Neill makes me too sad. When it's comedy and death, it, it hits different than watching dramas with like old dead people. It's like, man, I can't laugh at this joke. I feel too bad that he died three years later. Watching Mitch Hedberg is really hard. Man, I have no reference for any of these. I took his death hard as a kid. Yeah. This is interesting. Yeah. Anyways. Kaylee can't separate the art from the artist and it ruins most things for her. How are you guys doing? Persona 5 Scramble is great though. Love it. That will be the second or third game I play on my PS5 because yes. I got to play Miles Morales first. Of course. Okay. What's, what's the other one that might you might do after Miles Morales but before Persona? Probably Guilty Gear Strive. By the time I'm done with Miles Morales, Guilty Gear Strive will be out. Fine, because that won't take you nearly as long to beat as Persona. Okay. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I'll put so much time into that game because it's a fighting game. It's the first new fighting game in like five or seven years. Big fighting game. And it has uh, the best bad intro song. Oh, nice. It's nice rock music. And they're like, that is bullshit blazing. It's a great... <laughs> It's great. It plays. So, should we expect you at Evo next year, or wait? I have a better transition. Speaking of bullshit blazing, let's uh, get back to that Nintendo Direct at the start of the episode because I love the Direct. But if people aren't aware, and maybe I'm wrong here, my perception of the reaction to the Direct is that every human being hates JRPGs, but me. I'm a person that normally doesn't enjoy Nintendo Directs because I like a bunch of niche game genres and usually there's one or two bones thrown my way and a bunch of shit I don't care about. So I'm like, meh. But I actually watched this one and I actually really enjoyed it. So I got online stoked to finally be part of the let's be obnoxiously optimistic and hyped for Nintendo because Nintendo train. And suddenly no one was on it. I was the only one on it this time. I was pissed. I literally ended my recap video with, oh, I think Nintendo did a really good job of balancing out things this time. That's pretty hard to do. Yeah. Way to go. They had two or three things that everybody like could be excited for. And then everyone was just like, this is the worst. And I was like, what? <laughs> Where am I? Well, I'm saying this on a podcast. I don't like Nintendo fans. Nintendo fans suck. Because like... Most fans suck. Yeah. Is this like weird, huge gatekeeper community? They don't understand always what Nintendo is. Because, like, Nintendo in this Direct was resting on the things that the Switch is. This is the most Nintendo Switch of a Direct I could ever see. You got stuff involving Hyrule Warriors, a nice little spinoff that was pretty huge and really well-selling. You got Mario Sports Game, which is a thing everybody loves. Yeah. Everyone went crazy for tennis. Exactly. Remember when Mario Tennis came out and suddenly everyone liked tennis games for the first time? You got Monster Hunter, which is one of the biggest games of all time now. And then no more heroes information. And then sequels to JRPG spiritual successors or follow-ups to JRPGs. Octopath Traveler was a huge game for them. Therefore, Project Triangle Strategy, an equally bad name for a project. 
I would go so far as to say Project Triangle Strategy is worse than Octopath Traveler. Because at least Octopath sounds like, oh, what's Octopath? What's that mean? Is it about octopuses? Is it an Octodad sequel? It at least gets you interested. You know, Project Triangle Strategy is like, wait, is this a pyramid scheme trying to justify its budgets in front of a committee? That sounds like a great game. What? Thank you. <laughs> but then you also got like uh, Skyward Sword, which people make fun of and say it's a bad Zelda game. It probably is. But that doesn't matter because just, and the thing that I'm going to talk about a lot on this podcast is how game legacy is hard to have when you cannot get games on things that aren't their original hardware. And Skyward Sword had a rough thing because it was a Wii game, which was tethered completely to motion controls. And they took something that was tethered to motion controls and brought it to a console where you didn't need to rely on it anymore. It happened with Normal Heroes 1 and 2 went down on the Switch, and now it's happening with Skyward Sword. That means a world for two things with accessibility with who can play these games and who has access to things now. And that's like a huge, huge deal. But also, they started with the Smash Brothers announcement. Yep. They didn't make you wait. They did the thing. They did it for a bad game called Xenoblade Chronicles 2, which is a bad game, and it sucks. Wow. Yeah. Wow, all right. I was actually going to play it. How many good of hot takes? I don't know anything other than the fact that that opinion is controversial as shit. I played about 70 hours in that game, so I can say it's bad. But those characters look dope. And then Splatoon 3, Splatoon is one of their flagship titles now. So they gave you information from three flagship titles, Splatoon, Smash, and No More Heroes, a bunch of smaller mid-tier titles, and some weird shit in the middle. It's so well-balanced. A Mario spinoff game, Zelda remaster that adds accessibility features. I don't know. I just thought there was a lot of good things in here. And so Zagreb and I are outsiders 100%. We are the consumer perspective on this show. But Spencer and Jordan have some more, especially Spencer has more PR knowledge, not just some Spencer is more than highly qualified to talk PR about most things. If you are interested or need a voice for that on your podcast for something, you should reach out to her. And then Jordan, having developed games like We Should Talk, which is available. Is it still on sale? I'll get to that later. Okay. Oh, well, interesting. We could plug it twice, but I guess not because he didn't go to PR school like Spencer, <laughs> but he did make that game and had to PR it. So we have those two different perspectives coming to it. I'm interested when it comes to hype for these things. We, we started this talking about Reggie saying, think of the fans and consumers when it comes to E3. We've been talking a bit about these fan expos and how people set expectations for them and whether or not those expectations are valid. This is going to pull in something random, but like No Man's Sky was a story in how consumer expectations ran in a different reality than the words that were being spoken by the people making the game. And expectations ruined something that, you know, maybe didn't necessarily need those expectations in the first place. So how do we decide this track is hype enough? I think especially if you're doing something that's as moving pieces as tech, a lot of times it really comes down to what is ready to be shown. There have been number of tech launches that I have done that things had to be cut out of it at the end. The BlackBerry Pearl and the BlackBerry Bold were supposed to be launched together, but the Bold was delayed because of Chinese like manufacturing and some other stuff. And so like at the last minute, blackberry was like well we're gonna split these into two launches it really comes down to what you have right and also what you think 
especially when it comes to Nintendo, right? Everybody's going to buy a Mario game. They put Mario in there to draw their eyes to all the other things that they can get a cut of money from. The partner showcases didn't go over well because there were no mainline brand Nintendo things in those partner showcases last year. So people were just like, it's 15 minutes of Bakugan and I don't care. I think they learned the lesson that they can't break apart that direct because it has to have the characters and the things that people love about that brand in that director. People just don't want it. But on the other hand, I think that I agree Nintendo fans are pretty bad and I think they've gotten worse in the Switch era overall. The Wii U era for Nintendo fans is pretty humbling. I think that 2017 for the Switch was probably not a great paced year for expectations for that system because they put out a Zelda game and a Mario game in the same year and people don't understand that the Wii was not getting games for what was it two and a half three years almost that Wii basically was getting limped out games so that they could start banking games for the Switch launch. The Wii U wasn't getting games for most years? Oh yeah, sorry. Wii U wasn't getting games for two or three years. So that they could bank games for that Switch launch. We're now at a point where they've pushed out all their games. 18 to 24 months is probably going to be like we saw now. Just because games take time to make them. And then you had COVID, so any timeline that the public was made aware of prior to March 2020, and honestly, prior to maybe December 2020, because people were still being stupidly optimistic, you have to add at least two years to those timelines. At least two years to any of those timelines to make up for COVID alone. Sure, that comes at a specifically painful point for Nintendo because they have rolled through all those banked games that they had from focusing in on that. I would say that it's also hard for like Bioware. Like Bioware is really going to feel the epidemic. Any studio that really needed a fucking win this year, last year, and next year are really going to be feeling the pandemic because anything that was supposed to come out last year might be coming out this year. And then anything that's supposed to come out this year maybe will be ready by 2022. But it, So much depends on how long it took each studio to realize that the pandemic was the new future and who switched to all or is in a country where the pandemic ended, you know, like, yeah, those those studios will rebound faster. So we're going to see a bunch of really weird fucking timelines happening. And I think the studios that were in a position where they had either let out their load right before the pandemic or in the year or two before the pandemic. So it was about time where people were expecting more stuff from them or at least more news those people are going to be upset. Look at your Dragon Age 4. Really? You have as much to show for us as you did from three years ago? Next year, they're probably not going to have much more than that. It's really going to fuck with expectations in a way that I think people are going to not give that much grace for. People aren't still going to be like, well, there was a pandemic two years ago that fucked up the timeline. I think by then and even by now, people are like, whatever, you should already have adjusted. I'm bored of the pandemic. It no longer interests me as a valid excuse for why you're not benefiting capitalism. Which is hilarious because I sit and my partner is a software developer. So I am watching a software developer try to build software in an apartment with two dogs and another person. And for a job where a lot of them like to be in their office or in their cubicle where it's quiet and they can think and they can draw on their whiteboard and do all of their stuff. I think people have the assumption that it's like, oh, well, you sit behind the computer and you type, type, type. So you can just sit behind the computer and type, type, type anywhere. But it's hard when there's dogs barking and 
your girlfriend's playing Persona 5 too loud in the living room and like I can never do this one part of the code right so I used to always get Jerry from like the office next door to pop in real quick and write it but now I have to email him and then explain in the written word or find a time to schedule a phone call so I can explain what I need without the use of hands or physical pointing or anything like that that helps us communicate as humans that you don't realize you get used to when you're in an office all the time there's a lot of that knowledge right or like lunch yeah yeah like lunch is a pretty important thing people will be like so i'm working on this thing and i'm like stuck on this and all of that's gone it's making art in isolation not to mention they're not even thinking about the people with the newborn baby the people with the kids or two kids that have to also take class the same room that they're doing development with the work. same internet that you all have four yep. skype calls going or four zoom calls happening right now and oh by the way everyone's broadband still capped and yeah the person who has done this for three games in the last year it is horrible I worked remote for a while from before covid but i didn't do that in my home space i would go to my office at a university that is in new york and sit so no <laughs> and just like do my thing there but now being stuck to the confines of my room having meetings with people who feel the need to apologize because their kid comes up and say hey hey mom what you doing and i said i'm in a meeting right now honey and not getting the, the child care that they need not getting the animal care that they need dealing with whatever bullshit's going on in their house austin texas hasn't had power for a week at this point and yeah a week a week today actually yeah the company that makes my vinyl stickers is Rock and Monkey, and their presses and their whole setup is in Austin. So they sent out an email that was like, hey, our business is closed right now. We'll be back up in a couple days. I just got a follow-up email from them that was like, hey, so we still don't have power. Sorry, we'll let you know in the business. Like, our entire business cannot run. It's not just games that are going to feel the harsh reality of what COVID's going to do for us. The next four to five years is the real timeline that I'm seeing of the, the trickle effect of COVID. Do we really think Bayonetta 3 is going to be coming out anytime soon? That game was announced like three years ago. We haven't seen a bit of it. And COVID happened last year and this year. Right? It's still happening. Tying it to the conversation about setting expectations. A lot of people somehow disappointed by this conference have me nervous. In 2021, after a full year of delays and inability to work... In any type of real way that they've built their entire studio around, what do you expect them to have ready to show? What do you expect to come out in 2022? And if it's a game that's not coming out until 2024 because it got delayed three years because of COVID and then again because of climate and then again because of a second round of COVID and then, oh, here was a tsunami. We don't even know. We're not even out of it yet. The delay gets added to every day that we speak still because we are still in the middle of of all of these problems i don't want to hear about games that aren't going to be ready until 2026 is that what you want because that's the alternative it's either be like cool i don't play these types of games but i see there's a lot of good stuff for the people who do and i understand that the big games that i want are going to be delayed a long time or you're going to be really unhappy for the next couple of years <laughs> Yeah, I, I worry too, especially with um, how Nintendo under their current president, who I can't, I can see him in my head, but I can't think of his name. Shantaro Furukawa. That's it. Oh, Shantaro Furukawa. Okay, yeah, that's correct. He used to work on Animal Crossing. 
<laughs> I think it really worries me also because Nintendo, since Breath of the Wild, has really learned their lesson about telling you about stuff too early, right? Like, Breath of the Wild was seven years of us waiting for when is that game coming? When is that game coming? When is that game coming? Is it coming now? I think it worries me because I called out when the tweet went out that I was really excited that somebody at the social media team at Nintendo of America was like, I'm not putting this tweet out unless we have a clear message about what this direct is about. It's been 18 months. Didn't give fans a long time to turn their wheels on it either. It was out at like 8 a.m. the day before. And then it was like, we're talking about games that come out in the year 2021, which always means maybe that comes out in like winter of 2022, but don't expect it. Maybe we'll have something. And if it is, it's like a teaser with a logo. I mean, the Splatoon one was pretty substantial for coming out in 2022. Yeah, yeah. I would say Splatoon is probably their biggest surprise. Splatoon said not gameplay footage. As soon as something starts with not actual gameplay footage... I just disregard all of that as footage. The big important part of that game, what they show for that was at the very beginning, they showed hairstyles and things not being attached to gender, which is a big thing. Yeah, that was cool. So I just wanted to just acknowledge like, that was a huge thing for that game, which was like the closest thing they could have done to a mic drop for what they had to show to me. Yeah, I just worry that with clear expectations set and then people are still lighting their hair on fire about how bad it was. And it was just like... But it's not. They literally told you what you were going to get. What I think is sort of interesting is I tried to like see what people really did not like about this direct. And one of the key things that some people are pointing out is like, oh, a lot of the games that were announced are quote unquote hand-me-downs from other consoles. There's Fall Guys, which was already on PC and PS4. Ninja Gaiden, which is on everything else but Switch, but is coming to Switch in this new Master Collection. Then there's Outer Wilds, which I thought was already on Switch, but I guess it wasn't. Uh, Plants vs. Zombies and Apex Legends. Like, yeah, all those games are big and on other platforms, but they're finally coming to Switch. And watching the Direct, as a Nintendo fan, I thought, oh, great. These games are, in my opinion, good games. They're coming to a new platform. There's a newer audience. But seeing the reactions on Twitter, it's like, no, we don't want these hand-me-downs. I'm like, I personally don't consider any of them, these games a hand-me-down. And see, let's ignore anything that they're calling a hand-me-down and go over the direct again. It was Hyrule Warriors DLC. It was Blade Chronicles 2 new characters in Smash. It was uh, a new Mario Golf game. Um, it was more Monster Hunter Rise. That's a new game that's coming to switch and other things isn't it it's not an exclusive just switch oh it's it just, is an exclusive, exclusive. holy exclusive balls game, yeah. well yeah it's the new switch exclusive monster hunter no more heroes 3 they released it famicom murder club totally new that's a port isn't it that looks awesome it is not a port. it's the first or second there's an argument about it of the visual novel as you think it is like of the person yes. standing there and the words coming out it was the one that was based off the Darien Argento movie that I can never remember the name of, and then this one. And so, like, they fight about which one. People fight about which one is the actual. So it is a remake. of. It's of a really old game, so I don't think it counts as a fucking hand-me-down because I think it counts more in terms of going back to accessibility and who has access to playing games. Yeah, and it's the first time it's been localized in English. Right? Like, just in terms of, like, history of games and... 
game preservation. Just in terms of game preservation, I like it when three plus generations back games get remade. That shit makes me happy if for no reason other than games preservation. Like Diablo 2. <laughs> I like Diablo 2. So you have that coming, which you can or cannot count. I would count it because it looks super exciting and I would never play an old-ass Famicom game that's not available in English otherwise. World's End Club is the people from the Nonary games doing more cool stuff. Like, Triangle Strategy is not a sequel to Octopath Traveler. It's some totally cool new thing. So even if you take out... And then, you know, Splatoon 3. Like, you know, even if you take out all of the so-called, like, leftovers, you're getting DLC for a popular Zelda spinoff. You're getting um, an exclusive Monster Hunter. You're getting um, No More Heroes 3. You're getting Splatoon 3. You're getting more Danganronpa people. You're getting a cool visual novel murder series. You're getting, like, you know, it's just weird. I also wanted to shout out Neon White, which is the next game from uh, Ben Esposito, who did Donut County. Oh, yeah. And these two games are not at all like Donut County is a fun little top-down reverse Katamari. Neon White, I think, is a first-person shooter. It is. Or a first-person action game. That's what it looked like from the trailers. I totally forgot to put Neon White on the list. I feel like a dick. Yes, so that's another like whole new thingy. And the Donut County people are super cool. What was the name of that zombie guy that you like a lot? So that was a zombie, but that's a... Yeah, that would also be, I guess, you would consider... Is it not a new game? Leftovers? No, it's just that a zombie's old as shit. No, like, the game that they announced, was that... No, they're just porting it to Switch, was my understanding. It's the one that was made with the Halo engine. Oh. That's the Stub the Zombie fun fact. It is the Halo engine that Stub the Zombie was made of. Interesting. That is a fun fact. There's also a Star Wars game by Zanga. Yeah, I didn't put that on there because who the fuck cares about a Zynga Star Wars game? What the fuck, Zynga? Nobody wants you around. <laughs> Everyone hates you. Go away. In my opinion, there were a lot of great games that were announced in this direct, but people, because it's been so long since I real direct, People like to pick and choose and point at all of the, quote, bad things in Strack, which I don't think they're bad things. I just think people have such high expectations. Like, if you look at the Twitter thread when Nintendo announced the Direct, like, oh, it's a 15-minute presentation, first half of 2021. We're going to talk about Smash for a bit. If you look at all the replies to that, it a lot of the replies are Smash predictions. But it's just people being overhyped about things that they shouldn't be. Breath of the Wild 2. That was a tweet I saw multiple people make. Oh, but you know what? They did fu- they did they did do a kind of fuck you though. You can't you can't be like, "Hi. I know if you're seeing my face, you're expecting to see Breath of the Wild 2. Here's yes. Skyward Sword." Like, don't do that. Don't do that. I, I liked that. I liked it was like, look, I'm going to announce this. Uh, we have Zelda news and don't freak out. It's not Breath of the Wild 2. Like he said that immediately. Yeah. That is how you set expectations. That is, hey, I know what you're thinking. Breath of the Wild 2. I want to stop you right the fuck there. We said 2021. That is not Breath of the Wild 2. But we are making a Zelda game that people aren't too hyped on because it was stranded on a shitty motion control platform without motion controls. So not only that. They also release new Joy-Cons that are Skyward Oh my god, I want them games. so bad. Someone buy them for me. I'm getting a P.O. box. It's my next purchase. I'm going to put my P.O. box, I don't know, on my Twitter bio. Somewhere stupid obvious. I'm gonna, I need to get a bin tweet. I'm going to pin a tweet with my P.O. box. Get me these Joy-Cons. Send them to me. And I will note your happiness because my Joy-Cons are breaking and it makes me really sad. And they're beautiful and I want them. Or you could send Joy-Cons to all of us at the same P.O. <laughs> box. 
and we'll just we'll just we'll we'll shout you out on the next episode of the podcast. Or you can send four pairs of Zelda Joy Cons, and I will keep all of them. And then we'll not, push, I will not let her. Then we'll push Kaylee out. <laughs> Zygu thinks she can stop me. Speaking of Zelda, it's the 35th anniversary of Zelda today. So happy birthday, Zelda! Happy Zelda birthday! Nintendo, in my opinion, will have to have a direct focusing on the fact that it is the 35th anniversary of Zelda at a later point this year. I don't expect it to be anytime soon, but I feel like they have to do something. And same with Metroid is having an anniversary this year. (laughs) They fucking hate Metroid. Metroid's getting nothing. Metroid is just not getting anything. They hate Metroid so bad. They hate Metroid because they didn't know. This is your fun fact for this minute. The people at Nintendo didn't know what the phrase bounty hunter meant when they made Samus a bounty hunter. They thought bounty hunter meant space pirate. That's why Samus never hunts bounties. They were horrified by the idea that she would hunt bounties when explained what a bounty hunter was after her creation. And I think that's why they don't fuck with Metroid anymore, because they're embarrassed. That game is going to be on the next Nintendo console, is my prediction. They completely redid a studio, and then the pandemic happened. Like midway into production, that that game ain't coming out. No, I think also I don't know why anyone thought we were getting Zelda news until after the thirty first of March. It is the year of Mario until the thirty first of March, right? Yep. (laughs) They have made that specifically clear with their and this game's going away and this game's going away and all of our deals are lined up to go until March, even with Animal Crossing, right? That comes out in March. It's going through until the end of March. And then I think in April, May, we'll see, we'll see Zelda get attention, the same treatment for the next bit. But like they, they missed the Mario 35th anniversary too, because it's the pandemic, I think. Like that's it just, yeah, it puts you a year behind. <laughs> like They released those three games in one collection. Yeah. Not great remasters but Mario Sunshine exist yeah they exist On and they're, it, it's more about uh, video game preservation because now those games are playable for more people whether they're good ports is a different question but gotta buy them before March 31st though then they go away so how do the PR people see the reaction to this and fix with it because everybody's way behind everyone knows shit there's no if if that direct didn't do it we uh, nothing we have is gonna blow people's dicks off. So how do PR people go about pleasing the uh, grotesque horde known as the gaming community? So there's a favorite tweet, and I'll loop it back around. But uh, one of my favorite tweets I've ever seen is a guy trying to explain what Dune is after the Dune trailer came out. And everyone's like, oh, you love it. You've read those books. What is it? And he's like, well, it's like Star Wars if it doesn't give a fuck about you. Which is like, <laughs> Nintendo will not do anything. No. They're not going to course correct. They don't think they did anything wrong. And they didn't. Nintendo is the game fuck company them. that makes games that just doesn't give a fuck actually about what you think. They're not going to put out a game early. They're not going to be tempted to put out a game early to rush one. That's not what they do. You're going to have to wait. This is something that I think other companies are going to respond to. But Nintendo is sure. going to Nintendo. What are other companies going to do that Nintendo don't? Yeah. Oh, like that? Yeah. <laughs> so there is a small indie company called PlayStation. I don't know if you guys have heard of them. Get out. But there was a guy there named Adam Boys, and 
when talking about like PSX and whatnot, he said, oh, to make these shows great, what we try to do is have one or two things, something for everyone. And I feel like for future directs, Nintendo does need to focus more on trying to have a little something for everyone. No, Nintendo's not going to do shit. Tell me about someone else. Well, how, so how does PlayStation? So take it. What does PlayStation do with the PlayStation Direct this year? All of their games are not going to be coming out in 2022. Maybe they have something that could be ready by late 2023. What does PlayStation's Direct learn from what we just experienced? That is my question to you guys. I think PlayStation is in a really good spot right now because of everything with not counting the sales for PS5, but with the games that they have announced already. There's God of War, Horizon 2, and they're, they've said and are committing to supporting indie games. We've seen what they've done with Bucks Max and Little Nightmares and, what is it, The Devil Inside is another game that a bunch of people are hyped about. So if Sony can continue to support this wide variety of games and really showcase them the same way that they did with Bug Snacks. I'm reminded of that one Pixar looking game that they announced during their last state of play that so many people were excited about. But if they continue to showcase these types of games and have a little something for everyone, I think as far as like their PR and how they're handling it, it will be better than what we've seen Xbox or Nintendo have done with this past direct. You are literally the only one that doesn't have any sort of professional background that could give an educated opinion on the subject, so it makes me happy you're the first to give an opinion. Someone knows what they're talking about. What do you think PlayStation is going to do in response to the response to the Nintendo Direct? I'll go next because I also know nothing. Hell yeah! But in like a Socrates way. When no one knows anything. See? Socrates way. What PlayStation will do is what they'll continue doing is can keep telling us about the games that never came out because none of their games have come out yet. There's an advantage at this point. Miles Morales is the only PlayStation 5 big game that really came out because Cyberpunk didn't work out, didn't it? They just have a huge slate of all the things they've been holding on to that like were supposed to come out last year that will probably come out sometime this year. And I don't necessarily agree with the indie point because what normally happens when new consoles come out is the one on top has their big games and they kind of start doing some indie stuff and then they forget about them because they're the one on top. PlayStation's already running away far in between with this, so they don't have to worry about that. Xbox is going to keep doing the indie game stuff. We're going to see them on Game Pass. We're going to see all that stuff and they're going to be fleshing those out. And that's what we're going to see from them. And PlayStation is going to be like, big game, big game, big game, medium-sized game that we can call indie, but is from a studio like the ones that made Snacks, who made Octodad, which is a game that made millions and millions and millions of dollars Ooh. in the first place. So are they an indie? They're triple I. That but paper company, what are they doing? That's what we're going to see from all these other things. Nintendo is going to keep Maybe doing Nintendo far. things. Isn't that a, that paper company? That game company. That game company. Where did I get the word paper? So you think PlayStation's going to go more like triple A, triple I, triple A, triple A? Yes, I think that I'm almost like certain. And then Xbox will be more. Maybe Xbox, I might be a little wrong on Xbox, taking into consideration that they are buying a bunch of places. There you go. We're fucked. No matter what, we know one thing. No one wants to see 20 minutes of just dance gameplay. <laughs> In true PR fashion, here is your episodic reminder that you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Quirk of Art XD or on Twitch at Plain Old Quirk of Art. Jordan, what's your business card say? 
my business card says Jordan Jones Brewster, game designer and narrative designer. And I don't really want to identify as a game designer anymore, although I am one of those things. It's fine. I'm a writer, too. It also says you wouldn't believe this. You wouldn't you wouldn't freaking believe this, guys. It also says that watching Just Dance gameplay isn't that bad. It isn't that bad. You can find me at uh, twitter.com apologist get the fuck out of here no no one wants that at e3 no one's stoked to watch e3 so they can see what the newest just dances by having like 12 white hip-hop dancers just waving around on stage i'll have you know those dancers are mixed kaylee how dare you i need to know what's up with the just dance panda every year he is the homie i refuse to believe this is a controversial opinion you guys are just contrarians and it's not a good look this is what's wrong with the games industry right here i legitimately love just dance <laughs> i like just dance too that doesn't at mean I need it at fucking five minutes of my e3 presser that could be indie games Fuck that. No. I do love it. I like seeing dancers get work. Nepotism. And speaking of getting work, you can reach me at twitter.com slash versified. Uh, you can also buy We Should Talk. It was a game that was on sale last week. And by the time you'll hear this, you can wait for next week, Tuesday, when it'll be on sale again on Steam. You can also find me in the streets. And Spencer, what's your PR approved persona? I am Miss Nintendeek64. Nobody got what that was a reference from. It is a fictional magazine in Animal Crossing, the original, <gasps> and the console Ooh. that the original Animal Crossing game came out on. Ah. I miss Nintendeek64 everywhere. Twitter, Twitch, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, everywhere. See, I thought it was like really cute because I was like, oh, it's the perfect blend of like feminine and cute um, and nerdy. And that's just such a great aesthetic. And also I feel very your aesthetic. Uh, So I just went with it instantly. And I love the fact it's such a deep cut. Like, that's really good. I love a good deep cut. Uh, Zyger. How does someone spell Zyger? All right. So it's the letter X, the letter Y. G E R. Zyger does not. I have told Zyger how. You don't understand the number of times I have told Zyger the importance of using some sort of phonetic alphabet. I've gone over the NATO phonetic alphabet, but I've been like, make up your own. Pick whatever words you want. But when you are giving someone spelling in a solely audio format, you need to do some form of phonetic. Does he give a shit? No. No. Does he remember? No. no. Did he name a word that starts with X? No. Xylophone. God damn it, Zyger. See, I was thinking xylophone, but like in my mind, I was like, am I 100% sure that's an X? Thank you. How can people follow you for some reason? My handle is Zyger1337 on literally everything. There it is. All Twitter, right. Twitch. Well, this is going to do it for the week two patch rollout. Subscribe to future patches on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow the weekly patch at The Weekly Patch on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Or join the QA process on our Discord server. Comments, questions, bug reports? Send them to us at hello at theweeklypatch.com. Links to all these and more in the episode patch notes below. Week two patch complete.